Good morning. Good morning. It is really, really lovely to be with you today. Um, I have to say I enjoy summer, a wee change of rhythm. I'm not going to lie, I would like more sunshine. It's been poor this year. We get wee glimpse, don't we, for like half a day. Um, but it's still really lovely to be with you today. As, as Paul said, I'm on the leadership team at Central. And so I just want to actually start by saying thank you. Uh, thank you for encouraging us to have a heart for the city. Uh, thank you for letting us go from Carnmoney to worship and serve God in the city. It has been some journey over the last five, six years. And I count it a privilege to serve at Central. And, uh, and just in the last couple of years, took up leadership here across Carmoney and Central as well. And so it's been a joy to be joined with you and consider what is God asking of us? What does he want us to do? And so with all of that, it's lovely to have an excuse to be back here with you this week and in a couple of weeks' time as part of this teaching series. Um, the last time I was in Carmoney was the night that we called Stuart Hawthorne. And for those of you who were there that evening, it was a really exciting night. There was a real, I think we were all really aware that God was present and the joy that we felt as we moved forward. I think we're in a really exciting time with a new minister starting in September. And so I can't help but think, what does God want to say to us now in this season? as we get ready for new leadership. I think this could be a significant time this summer. And so I want to have my heart and my mind open to what does God want to say? I don't think it's a coincidence that you're looking at a series called Awesome God. It's a great series. As we reflect together on the life of Elijah and shows us who God is, reminding us of who he is, refreshing us on who he is. And so as we listen this morning, look out for what God might want to say to you this morning. What part of his character, his being, does he want to remind you of? But also, what is he saying to us as Carnmoney? Because there's a corporate learning here, isn't there, as we gather together. What might God want to be underlining to us this season? What might God want to remind us about himself through the story of Elijah? For the story of Elijah, these are our family stories. They're part of our faith heritage, part of our faith community backdrop and history. In fact, all across the Bible, there are countless stories of people's lives that tell us so much about how we can live for God. But more than that, they tell us about God himself. For as Dan said a few weeks ago, Elijah is not the hero of these stories. God is. And so as we turn and look at today's account, I wonder what God might want to reveal to us today. My mum's family are based on the North Coast. They are farmers, initially dairy, now beef. And with the farm being in the family for generations and generations, for me, who grew up in the town, I have such fond memories of visiting my granny and grandpa and my aunts and uncles on the farm. The smell that hits you as you turn up the lane, the collie dog gym that I have to say I was slightly scared of as a child, 
I remember watching the cows come in and out for milking. I remember packing the afternoon tea into satchels with granny and taking them onto the field during silage season. And no matter what time I rose in the the morning, granny would already be up. Her apron slightly covered in a dust of flour from the freshly made sodas that seemed to appear as if by magic every morning. I have a catalogue of stories from my time on the farm that bring a richness to my childhood. But more than that, they bear testimony to the gentle strength of my granny, the hard work of my uncles, the leadership of my grandpa, and the quiet faith that permeated that house and all that they did. I'd love to sit at the table and listen to the stories shared. Stories of my mum as a child. Stories of how they got on as brothers and sisters. I loved listening to the stories on the farm because they were our family's stories. I wonder, do you have similar memories? Memories of sitting as a child, listening to the stories around you? Or maybe as you got older, asking questions and finding out more about your family. Well, this morning, I want to invite you to listen to the story of Elijah today as part of your family story, part of your faith heritage. Not just to carry a fondness of these stories, but allow them to be a window to see God more clearly. Already in this series, you've looked at how God calls, how he provides, how he commands obedience. And today we're looking at the God who answers. The God who answers. Looking at that section in 1 Kings 18 from 20 to 46. We pick up this story of Elijah in the well-known account, the famous or perhaps infamous encounter on Mark Carmel. The backdrop has been painted over the last few weeks. Already we've noted the tension that entered the life of Israel in their king, King Ahab. In chapter 16, we've read he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before. What a statement. He chose badly in marriage, choosing someone opposed to the things of God. He served Baal, he set up a temple to Baal. And again in 16, it says, Ahab did more to arouse the anger of the Lord than did all the kings of Israel before him. And then alongside this king, we have the voice of Elijah the prophet speaking out on behalf of God. We followed Elijah warning Ahab that there would be no rain. And there has in fact been drought now for over three years. We followed Elijah's own story and how God looked out for him during this drought, feeding him in the Kerith ravine, and when the brook dried up, sending him to the widow at Zarephath. And where, as often happens, God draws lives together and through his generosity and provision, others were provided for. You looked at the miraculous um, feeding through the widow's flour and oil, You looked at how the widow's son died and we saw the supernatural actions of God through Elijah as the boy was returned to life. And then last week, Rick picked up the story when after three long years, the Lord sent Elijah to Ahab. It was time for the drought to end. And Elijah comes to Ahab and he says, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replies, but you and your father's family have. 
You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. Bring 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asher, who will eat at Jezebel's table. This is where we pick up the story. Gathered on Mount Carmel, we know God has instructed Elijah. Already Elijah has spoken to King Ahab, commanded him to bring the prophets to Mount Carmel. We know already that God has told Elijah he's going to send rain to the land. So we know change is coming. After three years of drought, rain is coming. So why is God gathering these prophets and the people on the mountain? Well, let's look at this account together. It's quite a long section, as has been said already. We're going to focus on that part of chapter 18 from verses 20 to, 20, or 20 to 46. So rather than read it in one sweep, I'm going to take it in chunks as we go along this morning. So feel free to have your Bibles open or your phones open or whatever way helps you concentrate or follow along. So let's start. 1 Kings 18 verse 20 opens with, So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Ahab gathers the prophets. And also we read in verse 21, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And here, at the start of today's passage, we're getting hints as to why God has orchestrated this event. Not only is God saying enough to the drought, but more than that, he is giving his people an opportunity to recommit to him. The drought was divine judgment towards a king and a nation that had turned away from God and turned to the God of Baal. It was time for change. God was speaking loud and clear. God was answering. And how did the people respond to what Elijah was saying? We read in verse, at the end of verse 21, but the people said nothing. Sometimes silence says it all, doesn't it? Sometimes in not saying anything, we are saying everything. Interestingly, this is not just an encounter with evil. This is not simply God saying enough is enough. This is a seminal moment for the Israel people. They'd been making decisions too long that were moving them away from God. And now in this moment, they would choose. They would have to decide who to follow. As I think over my life, I've had a couple of those moments key moments in my relationship with God. In my teens, when I owned this faith for God myself and was really aware that my priorities were really different than most of my friends. Again, in my 20s, when I responded to a deep call on my life to step into all that God had for me. And even again, over the last year, as I stepped into such a season of trust and peace with God. I wonder what your story is. Have you had key moments in your life that have profoundly impacted your relationship with God? When have these moments, when you've had these moments, have you been aware of the seriousness of what you're deciding? 
of who you're deciding to follow. This was a seminal moment for the Israelite people. And as we read on in verses 22, 23, 24, Elijah tells the people what's going to happen. I love this. I love that he allows the people to know what to expect so they can understand. He sets the scene. On the side of Baal, we have 450 prophets. And on the side of God, we have Elijah. And this is not a good numbers game. But maybe that serves to remind us again the actual power that our God is and has. And Elijah explains the process over verses 23 and 24. He tells people to get two bulls, let the prophets of Baal choose one, cut it into pieces and put it on the wood. Elijah will also prepare the other bull, put it on the wood. And then they can call out to their God of Baal. Elijah will call out to the, on the name of the Father and the God that answers by fire, then he is God. As he explained the process, the people were in, in agreement and were happy. And in verse 24, it says, then all the people said, what you say is good. And that's what happened. The prophets of Baal chose one and prepared it. In verse 26, we read, And then they called out on the name of Baal from morning to noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered, and they danced around the altar they had made. And then Elijah starts taunting them. Shout louder, he said. In one way, there's a brashness with this, a cheekiness. But more than that, Elijah is out and out trying to rile them. That's a great Northern Ireland term, isn't it? I doubt if he would have used that. But on the other hand, the prophets are trying everything they knew to summon their God. They're holding nothing back. So afterwards, no excuses can be made. Elijah taunts them, suggesting perhaps Baal is deep in sleep or distracted or traveling. Um, shout louder, shout louder. And so they do. Verse 28, so they shouted louder, slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until the blood flowed. Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Can I stop for a moment when it comes to us interacting with God, we just start talking, don't we? We just open our mouths and aware immediately that we can commune with God. There's no shouting, no dancing to get his attention. We simply turn and God is present. As you picture this scene on Mount Carmel, the spectacle, the noise, the chaos, the frustration, and juxtapose that with you sitting in your bedroom or at the kitchen table or out for a walk and the gentle way that you can commune with God. We have a God who is near. And so it is time for Elijah to show the Israelite people who their God is, to remind them of their God, to remind them not just that God is all-powerful, but to remind them that God is near.
And so verse 30, then Elijah said to the people, come here to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. Again, just stop and see what is happening. He starts with repairing the altar that had been torn down. It had been torn down during King Ahab's time and Elijah starts here. God is reminding the people of their heritage, their faith story. This is their God, the God of their fathers and their father's fathers. This is a God who wants to be near. We can forget, can't we? We can forget not just that we are sons and daughters of God, but we can forget who God is and what we've been called into. I don't think it's typical that we wake up someday and out of the blue think, I don't want God anymore. I think rather often life happens. And after several small uh, often seemingly inconsequential decisions, we wake up and we realize that we are far from God. Sometimes hurt has been the trigger, or we're disillusioned, or life has just got too busy. And it's like we've packed God up and we've put him in the attic because our lives have become too full. And it's easy to think, I'm too far away, I have too many unanswered questions, or I'm not good enough. But that is never how God works. Whether we want to sit in silence with him or share our many, many words, God always wants to be near. He is a God that answers, sometimes with action, sometimes with words, but invariably with presence. We are talking today about a God that wants to be near, who wants to be in relationship with us. I wonder, can you recall a time in your life when you were reminded of this? A time, a season when God showed up, perhaps answered prayer, or maybe you were just aware of a really deep peace that was no other explanation than God himself. Maybe it was spectacular. Maybe it was quiet. But the impact was the same. God was near. This is what's happening on Mount Carmel. God is saying, I am here. In this moment, God is reminding the people of who he is and who they are. I love that image of repairing, restoring, visually represented as Elijah rebuilds the altar. There's also a gentleness with how God works, a tenderness. He knows you well. He knows what you need. Restoration is how he operates, how he heals. And so we watch Elijah repair. Then Elijah gives the altar another twist. He digs a huge trench around the altar. And then we read in verse 33, he arranged the wood, 
cut the bull into pieces, laid it on the wood, and then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. And then Elijah says, do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down the altar and even filled the trench. You can see what is happening here. Elijah is creating a very different context. With dry wood, the prophets could not get their God to bring fire. And now with wet, no, dripping wet wood, Elijah would summon God. And so we read, verse 36, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, I have done all the things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So those people that know you, Lord, uh, are God, and they are turning their hearts back again. Did you catch that? This is so all will know who God is. This isn't simply about defeating the prophets of Baal, but also so these people will know that you are the Lord, our God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. This is Elijah's prayer. Answer me, Lord, answer me. So these people will know that you're Lord, our God, and you're turning their hearts back again. And this is God's heart. Here in this moment of history, evil leadership, misplaced spirituality, a long drought, we have this deeply serious spiritual battle being played out in front of the king and his people, but we also have the heart of God exposed, that the people of God will know who he is, that the people of God will know who they are. I was 17, 18, and I just finished my shift in the local May store. I had a wee Thursday night job um, when I was in my final year at school. And during my shift, mum would typically drop the car down so I could drive at home. It was great. Finished the shift, jumped on the car, zoomed up the road. It was like a two-minute drive. Uh, turned into the state, uh, turned into our drive. And that's where it went wrong. I mean, I have done this turn countless times but I clipped the car on the side of the gate. Now, if I was driving now, I'd like to think I know what to do. But then, in that moment, it felt like, if I drive forward, I will scrape the car. If I go backwards, I will scrape the car. So I did what only you could do, breathed in, <laughs> like that was gonna make any difference, and drove on. I could hear the metal against the side of the car as I am moving past. Oh, I stopped the car. Um, went into the house. I remember going straight to my room and pacing up and down in my room. All right, I'm going to have to tell them. I'm going to have to tell them. Mum and Dad were ready in bed. Knocked the door and um, told them what had happened. And then braced myself for either the look that parents can give when no words are required. You know the look. Um, or the things that they would say. And so I just braced myself. 
And then Dad very calmly went, look, sure I'll have a look. Pulled on his jeans and his jumper, went out to the car, came back in. Look, Harold, it's fine. It's fine. That was not the reaction I was expecting. Do you know this side of God? Yes, he is all-powerful. Yes, he knows all that is happening in our lives. But he is full of grace. Let's return to the passage. You know the punchline. Verse um, 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Immediately. No hours of pleading, no hours of shouting, no slashing himself with spears or uh, swords. Elijah followed the instructions of the Lord. Elijah asked and God responded. Then the fire of the Lord fell, burnt up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, and licked up the water in the trench. Imagine if you'd been there. Imagine standing in the crowd watching this. How might you have responded? Awe, fear, wonder, utterly terrified. And then we read, When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. How might you have responded? Sometimes there is just no denying who God is. I can't help but think in that moment, as much as I would have been in awe, I think I would have been scared. There's a quote that has been rattling around for many years from Annie Dillard. Let me read it to you. She writes, On the whole, I do not find Christians Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It's madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday, take offence, or the waking God may draw us out where we can never return. Do we know the power we so blithely evoke when we call on God? This is a terrifying account on top of Mount Carmel. God has shown up without a doubt. And what other response is there than he is God? This is the heartbeat of this story. In fact, this is the heartbeat of scripture. A God who wants to be known. A God who wants to share his life with ours and ours with his. 
Is that not the trajectory of our whole faith story, the God who is near? Is that how you are experiencing God today? Do you know this invitation to know him? Do you know the seriousness of the relationship that he invites you into? Are you enjoying life with him? If you were around church as a child, you know this story well. Maybe through the medium of fuzzy felt or veggie tales or just good storytelling from your Sunday school teacher or your parent. And it's great to learn these stories as children. But there's a danger that we pack them away with our childhood toys, see them as children's fables rather than engage them as fresh as adults. I know this story well. I've heard it many times. I've preached on it before. But as, as I prepared for this morning, it really hit my heart fresh how much God cares for his people. This act on Mount Carmel was to allow his people a chance to return. This is not just a story of divine power. This is a story of restoration. God is restoring his people to him. And again, this is a pattern we see throughout the Bible. God seeking out his people, God restoring his people, God calling his people back. I don't know if that resonates with you. I don't know if you feel like you've taken a bit of a battering over the last few years. COVID, work stresses, things going on with your family, with you. Maybe church has just felt like an added extra that was just too much. Maybe even God felt like that. And God is gently reminding you this morning, I am real. I am here. Come back. Come close. Come and know me. Come and let me restore you. He is always the father running toward his son or his daughter. He is always the father that wants to be close. Maybe before Stuart arrives, God simply wants to remind us he is God. He loves us and wants to be in a relationship with us, with you and me. Maybe this morning you need to know he's a God who answers, who says, I am here. But more than that, cares deeply about being in a relationship with you. God is pursuing not just you, but us. In this story, we see God revealing himself to people. And it's not after some confession, not after repentance. Remember, he had told Elijah rain was coming. The end of the drought was not because the people had changed, but rather God wanted to reveal himself anew to his people. He is making the first move. He was seeking them out. We can forget the side of God's character, but we're reminded of it in the stories that Jesus told. The shepherd searching for the one missing sheep, the father running towards his son in the parable of the prodigal son. The generosity of God, the overflowing grace of God, who forgives, who restores. 
You know, when the fire of the Lord fell, it didn't just burn up the pieces of the bull. It consumed everything. The bull, the wood, the stones, the water. This was more than an act of vindication. God wanted to glorify himself among his people. He was being fully present. As God answers, he gives himself. He presents himself before the people and he does the same this morning. He wants to meet with us this morning to remind us again, I am God, I am your God. Alongside the grace, compassion, the healing and restoring, there is also a seriousness which takes place. As Elijah stood and asked the people, how long will you waver between two opinions? He asked the same of us today. He asked for all of us. He asked for our loyalty, for our commitment. And yes, he may well, as he did with the Israelites, give people second chances, third chances, 29 chances. But he's still demanding it all. Are you ready, willing to step into all that God has for you and asks of you? As this part of the story closes, we finish the story with the drought finishing and rain coming. Just as Elijah had told King Ahab that would happen. Verse 45. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, and a heavy rain started following. God keeps his promises. The drought is over. God is in control. He's in control of the weather and the weather systems. He's the one who listens and responds. He's the one who is powerful. He is the one who is leading and caring for his people. We have a spectacular story this morning. It is violent and traumatic. It illustrates the divine power that God is, but it also illustrates his character. Compassionate. Gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. So how might you respond to our amazing God this morning? How might you respond to the God who answers? As I close, can I invite Sarah and Lauren up? May you know God afresh this morning. May we know him as a God who is near. May we know that he is a God that is fighting passionately for us and saying, come home. May we know he is a God who answers and may we, you and I, step into all that God has for us.